Hello and welcome to another episode of By the Numbers. I'm Borzoi filling in for James Carlson once more this week. He should be back next week, but I have with me his erstwhile co-host, Alex McNabb. How you doing, Alex? I'm, I'm kind of like worn out. Like I watched uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and I'm just real tired. <laughs> just tired. I was going to open this up with a quote, so I'll just go ahead and do that. Stability and inertia are not necessarily a good thing in a time of crisis. One of the most consistent results is the elimination of any tendency toward original thinking on the part of those selected elites. Creativity may be lauded in theory, but what counts as creativity in such a system consists solely of taking some piece of accepted conventional wisdom one very carefully measured step further than anyone else has quite gotten around to going yet. In a time of drastic change, that sort of limitation is lethal. More deadly still is the curious and consistent habit such elites have of blind faith in their own invincibility. The longer a given elite has been in power, then the more august and formal and well-aged the institutions of its power and wealth become, the easier it seems to be for members of the elite to forget that their forefathers established themselves in that position by some form of of more or less blatant piracy, and that they themselves could be deprived of it by that same means. The illusion of invincibility, the conviction that exist, that the existing order of things is impervious to any but the most cosmetic changes tends to be pervasive in any mature society and remains fixed in place right up to the moment that everything changes and the existing order of things is swept away forever. The intensity of the illusion very often has nothing to do with the real condition of the social order to which it applies. France in 1789 and Russia in 1917, to cite two of the most obvious examples, were both brittle, crumbling, jerry-rigged hulks waiting for the push that would send them tumbling into oblivion, which they each received shortly thereafter, but next to no one saw the gaping vulnerabilities at the time. In both cases, even the urban writers that applied the push were left standing there slack jawed when they saw how readily the whole thing came crashing down. The illusion of invincibility is far and away the most important asset a mature ruling elite has because it discourages deliberate attempts at regime change from within. Everyone in the society, in the elite or outside, assumes that the existing order is so firmly bolted into place that only the most apocalyptic events would be able to shake its grip. In such a context, most activists either beg for scraps from the table of the rich or content themselves with futile gestures of hostility at a system they don't seriously expect to be able to harm, while the members of the elite go their genial way, st stumbling from one preventable disaster to another, convinced of the inevitability of their positions, and blissfully unconcerned with the possibility, which normally becomes a reality sooner or later, that their own actions might be sawing away at the old and brittle branch on which they're seated. It's from Dark Age America by John Michael Greer. I am reminded of when I first came back to Virginia about 10 years ago and I was volunteering at a place called, called a Shawsville rescue squad and Shawsville rescue squad was, uh, it was a little bit dysfunctional, but it had been somewhat dysfunctional for a long time. And it, it was an institution that was continuing to operate and everybody felt that it would always operate despite, despite having all these dysfunctions. And what I'm looking at in front of me right now on my internet browser is an article that says Shawsville volunteer rescue squad property listed for sale. It's been dissolved and the property is now being auctioned off. 
But to everybody, and I, I sat in on these these discussions, these committee meetings myself, to everybody involved not very long ago, that would have seemed like an impossibility. Of course it's going to be around. It's been around for a long time. We've got some problems, but we'll, we'll, we'll always be here. No, you won't. This is basically the collapse episode, and it's weird for me to revisit this topic because actually reading the the bang thread about this article we're discussing, the Palladium article is uh, is very funny because for me, it was very funny because there were people basically pointing out like, hey, it's 2023 and they finally caught up to 2018 Borzai talking points. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah, no, so, somebody in that thread, they, they posted a reply. I was like, hey, you listed literally everything I was going to come in here and like repost for like the 20th time. Like they had, they, I think they even had a link to Joseph Tainer in there somewhere, which uh, yeah. that he he has that talk on the collapse of complex societies, which I think is just mandatory. Like everybody should sit through that, even with the bad audio and everything. <sighs> yeah, but, I mean, when it comes to collapse type stuff, basically, like the the, the major academic figure because there's well-known, uh, popular figures. Probably most known ones are John Michael Greer, who's kind of. I like his stuff, but he's a really weird, he's a, he's kind of a weirdo, <laughs> neo-pagan druidic order type guy, kind of get into weird, kind of into some weird stuff. And then there's James Howard Kunstler, who's, who's Jewish. And then there's a couple of like periphery figures like Dmitry Orloff, who lives on a houseboat, essentially. <laughs> uh, yeah. Then, I, like, I when it comes was... to the, then quickly, just when it comes to the academic figures, the, the two most, the two ones I know them are referenced the most are Joseph Tainter and Uko Barty, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, because Tainer makes a, a very uh, convincing set of arguments, and they're not wedded necessarily to things like fossil fuels. Like, there's an aspect of that in there, but I think, like, Greer's is significantly more predicated on fossil fuels, whereas Tainter's, regardless of, of whether the fossil fuel situation is super pertinent or not, the processes that he examines are going to lead you to a collapse one way or the other, so. Well, the two, yeah, basically... Greer's whole thing was catabolic collapse, that basically systems catabolized themselves, and he was examining it from a peak, from the uh, limits to growth peak oil perspective. And so from his perspective, even though like he focuses heavily on fossil fuels, because he does take a holistic view of collapse, but he just sees like what this is, what, what this society how it's going to collapse the way he views it is through a fossil fuel catabolic collapse. And so everything extrapolates from there. Joseph Tainter, and it's been years since I've read the collapse of complex societies, but Tainter takes the broad academic view that collapse is a very complex subject. It's a, In fact, it's really a loaded term because it, kind of, it brings to mind so many different things and people can have very understandable misunderstandings about this stuff, but basically he he even highlights like 11 different causes for a collapse in a complex society. And what my favorite one that he cites is mystical reasons, <laughs> which is the, which is the, which it sounds funny when you say it that way, but he's actually like making a Spenglerian argument when you read God, what dude. he actually says in, in the, in the, in the, well, well, not really, but it's what it, it's what it feels like. Like it's like an act of God thing, but that, that it's actually usually covered under environmental reasons. When he says mystical reasons, he's actually referring to the Spenglerian theory of history is what he's referring to. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, so some of the, even on like a local like folk wisdom level, like there's always this thing about, well, you know, the you get the one generation that like they make they make a farm and they you know carve out a living for themselves, and then the next generation of that kind of maintains it, and then the third generation just sort of catabolizes it. They just chop it up and sell it. 
It's very, very common thing to observe out in rural America. When this article came out, this Palladium magazine article, which, uh, Complex Systems Won't Survive the Competence Crisis by Harold Robertson, I had so many people messaging me about this, about like, oh, your your collapsed talking points are are entering conservative discourses, which, well, one, like, they're not really mine. Like, I was just ripping John Michael Greer off wholesale. I mean, I was never, I was very transparent about, about that. They're not really my talking points. It's just a subject I happen to be interested in. And these things have been around for a long time because they've, a lot of prepper community people talk about this stuff as well. But right. it was funny to see this article basically trying to systematize a a collapsed narrative within quote-unquote dissident right circles essentially yeah yeah i mean that's uh it is i wouldn't necessarily call it boilerplate but it's sort of just touching on a lot of the standard understandings of what's going on in terms of like deterioration of society and civilization and the kind of cycles that you tend to see i think it does have some interesting aspects to it that can be fleshed out a little bit more in terms of what this does to people in these systems and how they start to behave differently because that's i think something that's been overlooked a little bit certainly something i haven't thought about a whole lot until recently i have somebody close to me that is in the school system and watching how this unfolds there is quite fascinating <laughs> and it's going to touch on some of the things in in the uh this article here where did you want to start with this piece I, I skimmed it right before we did this again because it's been a long time since I actually read this article uh, since it came out in June. But the the thing that is the driving force for about half of the article is basically talking about how it's an argument for what what liberals are doing, what neoliberals are doing to the system is eroding it from the inside out because there's no competency it's basically the whole argument of you need us because you're cre you're, you're rotting the system out which is what a lot of these conservative writers tend to do they're basically making a plea towards the systems like don't you don't you idiots see what you're doing you're sawing you know going back to the whole john michael greer quote there of like you're sawing off the branch that we're all sitting on louis conde can actually better summarize this uh this article with a, a post that he made half over half a year ago which I say I happen to save a screenshot of because I loved it so much. This is basically what the thesis of the first half of the article is. What made America a superpower was its logistics, in particular, allocating its human capital. American dominance in the 20th century was because it had an exceptional system where teachers all across the country knew to look for exceptionally bright students, make note of it, and make sure they got a pipeline to elite institutions like MIT or Stanford. If you look at a lot of people from places like Bell Labs, they came from small towns you never heard of like Columbus, Nebraska, Petoskey, Michigan. Farmville, Virginia, or Visalia, California. This pipeline got disrupted in the 1970s, and we were coasting on inertia for some time. And now the pipeline has been completely blown up like Nord Stream. This will cause a <laughs> cascade of calamities as talented white men are frozen out for political reasons. Okay, so I, I think maybe one thing to kind of reflect on for a second is when you get to like this stage in civilization, it, it is fairly complex, right? And that complexity has a running cost. Like it has an operating cost. It's not free. So just to maintain what you have is expensive. Like we're not, let, we're, let alone. We're, which is for, like, for people who who hear the word catabolic collapse or catabolic and don't aren't sure what what we mean by that. That's what Alex is describing there precisely. Is that basically you're 
it, it's you're cannibalizing essentially what you've what's already been built up before you because like the the, the energy the, the costs the energy costs or the labor costs or whatever the costs outweigh the actual output yeah so yeah, you, I mean, it'd be, you, it'd be you like, end up you end up you end up burning more capital and more energy and more money in order to get diminishing returns on capital energy and money yeah, yeah. I mean, it, like in the biological terms, it would be kind of like, oh, well, your 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 muscles are wasting. Well, your muscles are wasting because your body is taking that tissue that costs resources to maintain and just breaking it apart and using the resources that are in the muscle tissue. And so you yeah. can see the same kind of thing happening in society and civilization and many many different cultures over time. Like this, this is a process that has been repeated many times. So I, I think it's important to reflect on that because what what it implies is that you're already in a situation that's going to require more competence than it did 70 years ago, right? Like maintaining what you've got is going to require even more input and you're consciously choosing to go in the wrong direction, like the exact specific 100% wrong direction with that by using less effective people in these kinds of roles and like promoting people who are less competent. So it's, it's like an accelerant. Like the the ability to get away with this is even more limited now than it used to be. Yeah, that's that's why I wanted to open up with that Greer quote because the mindset that he ascribes of the people that are ba- the elites and and their functionary class. Uh, he did because Greer doesn't really make that distinction between the functionary, at least in that in that passage, doesn't make that distinction between the functionary class and the elites. But the functionary class, the the functionary class for the system, which are aspirational elites and are probably never going to even achieve any kind of elite status, are wholly unsuited for the roles that they've been able to curry favor for and have been appointed for. And that's basically what the what the gist of mo- a lot of this article is. They he goes into a lot of data on how this um, diversity system works and why it. It's it's funny for us to talk about because it's like yeah, like you guys are appointing blacks and blacks to positions that they are not competent for. <laughs> we can say that in one sentence because he's a conservative. He has to say it in five paragraphs. So it was like yeah, you, they're 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 appointing. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, and there's it, that example of a business he points out in there that's very yeah. intentional. And I, re- I remember laughing when I was reading because I was like, wow, that's that's a way to get your point across very carefully and delicately. <laughs> Which there's a there is there's an an argument for presentation. I I can understand why people will want to talk about things a little bit more delicately or a little bit more academically. But it was yeah, a little it's, funny it's revisiting this art. It was a little. It was funny revisiting this article. It's like, yeah, it's because they're pointing blacks. Yeah. <laughs> <It> just... <laughs> yeah. Now I'm anyway. glad that you're touching on the the elite culture aspect because I see people. And talk to people who they look at what's happening from the elite circles. They're like, well, this must be some sort of master evil plan. And I'm like, I don't think so. No, I think this is just part of their insular, cloistered little culture. To them, this makes sense. It's profoundly rational to everybody looking at the situation. But to them, it makes sense on some level. It's not even part of a plan necessarily. It's just... Well, yeah, of course we want to uh, improve equity because, yeah, that's what we do. I was well, been raised in equity this is, <laughs> this is actually kind of funny because when we talk about like examining things from a uh, from a systemic systematic perspective, you would think that's like kind of an all or nothing position, but really it's kind of the right winger that has the all or nothing 
position. It's they're the ones that everything is planned down to its most minute detail, or nothing at all is ever planned. It's all or nothing, and they and it's because they lack a systematic and systemic way of examining a situation. Because you can have basically you you can have like, from the perspective of the elites, for example, it is in their interest to have divert to have different groups that are at odds with each other especially if you empower one group to disempower a group you do not want to have mm-hmm. empowered that is planned that is a that is a specific thing that they do but that does not imply that everything from there that happens after that is going according to plan they're taking a specific population control method and applying it and I think we're living in a lot of the unintended consequences of a lot of that. Because I, I, if they wanted a well-ordered, uh, manicured system, I mean, like I think the proof is in the proof is there that they could, if if it were if they were capable of doing such a thing, if they were of capable capable of making this complete sheeple, they could. <laughs> the mm-hmm. propag- like the the level at which like the this um system we live under that the how how strong its propaganda is and how it's been able to shift people's opinions on very deeply felt political issues in such a, such a short span of time i always think of how um mike talks about revillo p oliver in one of his books basically he he was so blackpilled that he when white people didn't fight against desegregation. He just, he considered it, oh, like he basically said it's over in the 1960s. He, it's over. He, he was, he had already basically felt like, well, if they're not going to fight in this, they're not going to fight in everything else. So he's not exactly wrong. I mean, like, look at how quickly they're able to shift people's opinions on things. Now that you do, they do it in perverse ways, usually from basically like, this is why the only lib thing, only lips thing works so well for them is basically they're trying to give you a, a outlet as an opposition to a current you don't like, but they this propaganda system is so effective in shifting a lot of people's opinions so rapidly that if they wanted a total control system, they could just roll it out if they if they were capable of doing that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you could but think of this like 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 COVID, like how fast they were able to shift things back and forth, and then yeah, when it was all said and done, they got away with it too. Like no one really held them accountable. No one was like, wow, yeah. you know, maybe maybe I should question how the system functions because <laughs> it seems like. Seems like I'm being rused over here. Yeah, so I mean, they, they, it's a common. The system is essentially a combination of a specific ethno-religious group's uh, racial interest on the race uh, on the race principle, coupled with an ideology that they've uh, gassed up their functionary class with. And these two interests are constantly trying to. Sometimes they're at odds with each other, although one doesn't realize what it's actually at odds with. Uh, And they're trying to control this complex system and get things working, and we're living kind of in the results of that. Nobody under the age of 40 expects anything to ever get better in this country. No, of course not. Of course not. (laughs) That's, that's, That's where we are. Yeah, you're actually kind of surprised whenever you see an improvement to anything. It's like me watching a road get paved. I'm like, oh my god. You you still do that? <laughs> yeah. It, now, if it's like actual infrastructure, you're you're kind of shocked and impressed by it. If it's a a promise of some sort to improve your livelihood, you'd assume like, oh, I'm being scammed in some way. Like, what's the what's the catch here? How am I how am I how am I being nickel and dimed to death this time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like one one of the things that I, I saw scroll across my newsfeed before I got on the, the show here was that. 
There is a stabbing at a police station between uh, what they're calling euphemistically migrants. There was a migrant who stabbed another migrant, and I guess they were being housed at the police station. They're being housed there because Texans had shipped them to New York. And I'm reading this article, and I'm like, that is a profound level of dysfunction, <laughs> an amazing level of dysfunction in a fairly complicated system uh, to I, see that kind of outcome. And this is why I understand when people have a a certain objection to collapse stuff, especially when when specific like the the cyclical theory of history type stuff. I actually agree with that because every you know it's to paraphrase Tolstoy and, and Anna Karenina, you know all all happy civilizations are like all collapsing civilizations collapse in their own individual way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. There's precedent for basically having this kind of decayed, dysfunctional system, but the specific things that this system does, there is no precedent for the level of po- I mean, there have been population exchanges in history and there have been demographic changes in imperial history. There's a reason why that I often reference the Ottoman Empire is because they in the, in their history they went from being a christian majority empire because of the lands they controlled to being a muslim majority empire because of the territories that they lost and the and the population exchanges that occurred the ottoman empire didn't even become a muslim majority uh empire until the about the 19th century essentially because they, mm. they lost mostly because they lost a lot of those lands but it's the level of dysfunction you see in the united states the only empire i can think of that really like have has even a, a number of analogs to it is the ottoman empire and even then like the it's just it's fun to make those comparisons i like it the revolver news has ripped me off and written an article about it as well but american collapse is not going to have any other historical analog because yeah. you're going to be reading things about like oh yes during the final days uh the drag queens oh, i have to explain to you what drag queens but the drag queens they were reading to the children in sunday school <laughs> I mean, well, that, actually, I don't, the funny thing is you, you can almost draw an analog to like Chinese imperial history because of the eunuchs. I mean, they, these people are essentially the drag, the whole drag queen phenomenon in terms of the, the political space that they occupy is actually quite similar to the space that eunuchs are often in, in imperial empires, especially the Chinese ones. But it's distorted by how evil America is because it's like the reverse. It's like supposedly you, got, you want eunuchs around because they're not going to cause problems in terms yeah. of sexually molesting people and this is quite the reverse yeah at least the, at least the chinese eunuchs can't really hurt yeah. people to the extent that, that, that they used yeah. to be able to in this case it's like no they're going to molest somebody or convince someone to hack off their genitals like, what <laughs> yeah no that's what they do in america so anyway yeah. um back to this article so yeah it, it talks quite a bit about the mentality of dei or I don't like arranging that acronym that way. I prefer it the other way. D-I-E. D-I-E. That's how I prefer it. <laughs> I mean, because that's, that's what they're saying to us. So Yeah, yeah. Because they, they were talking about how at some point during the FAA had relaxed its standards and they started having uh, aviation disasters. So they had to increase the standards. So now they're playing around that, with that game again of reducing those standards so they can have diversity. And I think it's important to understand perhaps that to these institutions, disasters and loss of life, that doesn't matter that they're not going to change course because of that. No, I mean the Stalin, the Stalin quotes very apt, the alleged Stalin quote. I don't know if he actually said or not, you know, single death is a tragedy. Million deaths is a statistic. 
Yeah, it, do, it, it does not provoke any change in policy. I've seen this within institutions that literally collapsed. They will continue shuffling things around on the sinking ship right until it goes under the waves. That's kind of the sad thing about the situation is the the very cloistered and hidebound mentality of people prevents them from actually adapting or trying anything different or radically restructuring most of the time. Unless there's like a hostile takeover or something. Yeah. I, I think honestly that may be the kind of the only two options you have in these situations. Either there's a hostile takeover or the thing just implodes. Yeah, I mean it's performer revolution. That's I mean, Kaczynski talks about this in in um his manifesto. Basically the the two paths for a system when there's opposition when there's opposition to it are either reform from within or a revolution from without. And in the manifesto, Kaczynski talks basically talks from the perspective. And obviously, he's attacking the whole technological system, so his mm-hmm. is a little bit different from probably how most people would imagine would imagine this or even have sympathies for. But you can still take his, you can still find his criticisms to be salient, and he's very skeptical about reform because reform is basically just a band aid. This is what, and this is why he preferred revolutionary action. Because when you look at the history of reform versus revolution of various complex systems, reform is basically allows a a damaged or corrupt or just evil system to hobble along longer mm-hmm. than it actually. Like it doesn't make things better; it just makes things last longer. Right, right, like the Roman and Empire. So, and so for people who have an issue with the system, it's better to be a revolutionary, even though even if there's not an immediate incremental gain from that in any in any way, because at least you have an ethos, at least you have a morality that you're starting from that you want to infect, you know, infect this a new system with that superior morality, essentially. Or at least Yeah, yeah. And that's more a, like supu- a superior will. Yeah, so it's more like really hitting the reset button as opposed to like patching it again for like the 20th time, which I, I was listening to the, the Tainter discussion on the Roman Empire. and He was pointing out all these times they had reformed and found various yeah, band-aids. The Christ, they I bring it up here. all the time. Christ is the third century. I mean, the Roman, the Western Roman Empire could have collapsed a lot sooner, but reforms in the uh, in the Western Roman Empire, well, in the, in the Roman Empire, which really is what created the situation of the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. But the reforms of the, in that were addressing the crisis of the third century is what allowed the, the Western half to hobble along another for another 150 years or so. Mm-hmm. Of course, eventually. Was it, bad, was it better, I guess, for people who are living in, in the there and now? It was probably better but i mean at the same time in in the province of gaul you had the bogaday or bogaday where it's kind of pronounced both ways but you had you had people who were completely shut out from the it was a calcified uh bureaucratic elite system and you had these people who were in the in the gaul uh, in the gallic territory the gallic province who were shut out and couldn't get help and so they just kind of became half barbarians like well you guys aren't we're just going to run our own affairs like you guys aren't doing anything for us and these barbarians that are coming over well we'll strike a deal with them screw you yeah 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 uh so the, I, f- I found the part about the uh the, he used this article there's a particular example of a company that's sort of bucking the trend a little bit in terms of just is this is this from the last part the american system is cracking because i kind of i i figured it, to give this article it's just due we could read this whole part here because it kind of summarizes 
Sure, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I don't know if this is what you're referring to, but I figure this might be a. Uh, so it's right. It's right. Yeah, it's, it's pretty close there. If it's. Uh, yeah. But. So promoting diversity over competency does not simply affect new hires and promotion decisions. It also affects the people already working inside of America's systems. Morale and competency inside U.S. organizations are declining. Those who understand the new system makes it hard or impossible for them to advance are demoralized, affecting their performance. Even individuals poised to benefit from diversity preferences notice that better people. People are being passed over and the average quality of their team is declining. High performers want to be on a high performing team. When the priorities of their organizations shift away from performance, high performers respond negatively. This effect was likely seen in a recent pa- is is this the part you wanted to get to as well? Is this what you're this exactly did, yeah, because this is this gets into some pretty interesting stuff I've seen myself recently. This effect was likely seen in a recent paper by McDonald, Keeves, and Westfall. The paper points out that white male senior leaders reduced their engagement following the appointment of a minority CEO. While it is possible that author is correct, and that white men have so much, I'll, I'll, I'll try to. That author, I'll try. Like this is the professional show. I really should try. That author Ijoma Alo. Is correct, and that white men have so much unconscious bias raging inside of them that the appointment of a diverse CEO sends them into a tailspin of resentment. There is another more plausible explanation. When boards choose diverse CEOs to make a political statement, high performers who see an organization shifting away from valuing honest performance respond by disengaging. Some demoralized employees, like James Damore and his now famous essay, Google's Ideological Echo Chamber, will directly push back against pro-diversity arguments. Like James, they will be fired. Older, demoralized workers, especially those who are mere years from retirement, are unlikely to point out the decline in competency and risk it costing them their jobs. Those who have a large enough nest egg may simply retire to avoid having to deal with the indignity of having to attend another inclusive leadership seminar. As older men with tacit knowledge either retire or are pushed out, the burden of maintaining America's complex systems will fall on the young. Lower-performing young men angry at the toxic mix of affirmative action hurting their chances of admission to a good school and credentialism limiting the good jobs to graduates of good schools are turning their backs on college and white-collar work altogether. This is the continuation of a trend that began over a decade ago. Well, it was way over a decade ago, but fair enough. High-performing young men will either collaborate, coast, or downshift by leaving high-status employment altogether. Collaborators will embrace allyship to attempt to bolster their chances of getting promoted. Coasters realize that they need to work just slightly harder than the worst individual on their team. Oh, wow, it's literally me. Their shirking is likely to go unnoticed, and they are unlikely to feel emotional connection to the organization to raise alarm when critical mistakes are being made. Wow, it's literally me. The combination of new employees hired for diversity, not competence, and the declining engagement of the highly competent Sets the stage for failures of increasing frequency and magnitude. Yeah, yeah, this is the best part. This, 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 this is just an amazing, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, it's like a positive feedback loop, right? Like, you, you, you not only are promoting people who are incompetent. The competent people are now downshifting, they're coasting, they're letting off the gas. 
So you're you're making the situation far worse than simply adding an incompetent retard because now everyone around them is starting to act more and more like incompetent retards simply because you've added more to the mix. Yeah, and I, I've seen this kind of play out in the the school system where they will try to try to boost the grades of people who are simply not not of the correct intellectual caliber to be attempting what they're trying to do. And they will boost their grade, their GPA average up with all of these these extra classes and, and credits and things and you know, optional stuff. And it means the smart students can just completely fuck off. You know, they can let, let their foot off the gas because there's going to be enough extra credit in their course that they can just phone it in and still be passing with like an A because the, the overall rising tide is going to just push you there. And the retards, many of them will still be failing out too, which is quite a thing to see given how much stuff is pushed in their direction to help them. But yeah. Or or they just think it's pointless and hopeless. I, I guess yeah. I, I'm, and I might, maybe I'm, cause I'm an, I'm an, I'm, I, I wouldn't say an older millennial. I'm core millennial. I'm a core millennial, essentially. It, it is weird to think because of how much millennials are, are shit on. It is weird to think that I'm on the I'm on the tail end of 30s now when I'm a core millennial and the just the level of resentment and hatred that people have towards us, which some of it is some of it is deserved. But I remember being in college and not wanting to go into academia or really do anything because I just to me, it seemed hopeless. Like I saw no future back in 20, 2000, not 20, uh, 2008. I perceived there was no future and Obviously, that's only gotten worse, and I can only imagine like, white men that have similar personalities and dispositions as me having the having even worse feelings towards it when oh, and, yeah, if they're in college right now. It's the standard mode of being an American is you're cynical. I remember to arguing with a professor once who very very liberal very pro social security is like yeah i'm not getting that I'll, i won't be getting that and he was just very a much older gentleman just flabbergasted i would even say anything like that that i would have no faith in the american system that mm-hmm. i would ever exp- you know i said like yeah i ain't seeing any social security yeah i know i'm paying into it but yeah I, that's i ain't getting any of that yeah yeah i mean that, that that's that, that is the standard uh position to have now is just be utterly cynical about every organization whether it be government whether it be private doesn't matter you're going to just see them as, as being uh the people trying to fuck you over and screw you try to take advantage or or it's just there's not going to be anything there like one it's like, going to be like uh is, is anyone even going to know this reference is going to be like geraldo rivera open up opening up the al capone vault <laughs> big, big, big deal here. Like we're gonna, like we're gonna, like, gonna be a lot in here. We're gonna open, we're gonna open this up, and it's just like, oh, it's just, there's nothing there. That was a waste. Like that was a waste of time. But it's, now it's just my society, and my life, instead of just a weird uh, news program. Yeah, uh, there's this other paragraph here too, because this kind of points out the thing about the whole the complexity problem of you've got all these systems that have to interact together, they have to be coordinated. That's the thing Joseph Tanner goes into is you need complex structures and you have to coordinate those structures. Like it's two parts, lots of these little individual complicated pieces, and then you've got to orchestrate them all together to have a functional system. This is what you this is what you and I harped on when it came to revolutionary politics as well, is you need functionaries. It just because people see the results of of a thing, so they don't understand the inner workings of it. But you need functionaries, and functionaries, even if their reasons are the most self 
interested reasons possible. They need a reason to believe in the organization or in order to drive them to maintain the organization. Yeah, and when you, you don't, and, and you need the, and then like when things scale up towards more complex situations, you need functionaries that can basically. I think this is what this is actually technically what cybernetics really is, but you need people who are able to connect these different aspects together. Yeah, you need you need like that polite middle-aged female secretary that just does her job, has a chip attitude, and happy to be there, happy to make it a paycheck. That's you need those functionaries, you need people like that. Keep they keep the lights on. They're the ones who yeah. interact with all these other organizations and systems and make sure that things are coordinated. And if your functionaries are demoralized, depressed, or having to work three jobs to make ends meet, your system cannot be maintained. No, no. The, the, the paragraph they have here is a modern U.S. The modern U.S. is a system of systems interacting together in intricate ways. All these complex systems are simply assumed to work. In February of 2021, cold weather in Texas caused shutdowns at unwinterized natural gas power plants. That killed the a bunch of people. The failure rippled through the systems with interlocking dependencies. As a result, 246 people died. Okay, so we have actual numbers. Because I, I covered this when this happened. I remember because I was deep into, I was much, I was podcasting a lot more back then. And I was deep in my collapse stuff. And I remember covering this. I was like, I just said, yeah, a lot of people are going to die from this because the, the mm-hmm. especially from Dallas's clinics basically being shut down. Now, a lot oh, of these places yeah. do have generators, but a lot of them don't, and also generators run out of power. So, yeah, I mean, he, he covers. Uh, let's see here, 1984, Charles Perot, he also a sociologist, published the book Normal Accidents: Living with High Risk Technologies. Uh, this book, Perot, lays out the theory of normal accidents when you have systems that are both complex and tightly coupled. Catastrophic failures are unavoidable. And, and cannot simply be designed around. That's simple. That's actually similar to like whole uh, um, Taleb Nassim or whatever his name is. His yeah. whole black swan incident type stuff is that, that you you can't plan for a black swan incident. The most that you can do is maybe m- mitigate some of the problems after the fact. Right, right. Because what you use as a guide for your planning is what you currently have experience with or understanding of. You're not going to be potentially projecting for all of the possibilities that could potentially happen. Uh, Let's see here. They mentioned the Three Mile Island accident. Relatively minor blockage of water filter led to a cascading series of malfunctions that culminated in a partial meltdown. Uh, And then, of course, we had the financial markets, which that's a whole fucking iceberg I don't even want to attempt to get into. Uh, Let's see here. The biggest shortcomings of the theory is it takes competency as a given. The idea that competent organizations can devolve to a level where the risk of normal accidents becomes unacceptably high is barely addressed. Now, that's something I find to be an interesting point because you look at places like South Africa and how they've increasingly normalized just having constant power outages and turning into essentially a true third world country. And that's not something that's being like fixed. It's not being resolved. It's just, this is now the new normal. And the same thing is happening in the United States. Uh, Power outages, for example, in the U.S. are fairly common. (laughs) Disturbingly common, in fact. And you just sort of take that as, because it kind of happens a little bit gradually at first, and you just kind of take that as the new normal. And besides, how would you fix it if you wanted to? 
Who would you complain to? Uh, the U.S. has embraced a novel question. What happens when the men who built the complex systems our society relies on cease contributing and are replaced by people who are chosen for reasons other than competency? The answer is clear. Catastrophic normal accidents will happen with increasing regularity. While each failure That's is officially, where I was start, yeah. Yeah, officially seen as a separate issue to be fixed with small patches, the reality is the whole system is seeing failures at an accelerating rate, which will lead in turn to the failure of other systems. The case of the campfire that killed 85 people, PG&E fired a CEO, filed Chapter 11, and restructured. The system's response has been to turn off electricity and raise wildfire insurance premiums. This has resulted in very little reflection. The more recent coronavirus pandemic was another teachable moment. What started just three years ago with a novel respiratory virus has caused a financial crisis, a bubble, soaring inflation, and now a banking crisis in rapid succession. Speaking of which, I... I talked to somebody during the whole COVID pandemic thing who was deeply embedded in the financial world and basically his perspective on that for the financial world side of it is that they used it as an opportunity to stress test certain financial aspects of our of our economy to see who was basically who was redundant essentially like how much how much pressure can the system take and how many people are expendable <laughs> and that's it's i think you you see that those results in the way that there there was a partial restructuring of our economy that happened in a, like which was revolutionary like in in a definitional sense that w- what happened during the covid era was revolutionary because there was a complete sweeping up of old methods of doing things and a, a brand new form that was now there's been some attempts to kind of like that's like kind of like the republicans like desantis is basically trying to roll back things to be like let's go back to how things were essentially but things things never go back to how they were that just like the the reactionaries have never won ever ever (laughs) yeah the most you get is the best you get is a napoleon who because napoleon uh rolled up a lot of the excesses of the French Revolution, but he was still a product of the French Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's see. Uh, patching the specific failure mode is simultaneously too slow and induces unexpected consequences. Cascading, cascading failures are the capabilities of the system react. 20 years ago, a software bug caused a poorly managed local outage, led to a blackout, on now power to 55 million people, and caused 100 deaths. Utilities were able to restore power to all 55 million people only four days. Oh, God, I remember that. 2000, Because I was part of that. I was in that blackout zone, the 2003 blackout that wiped out basically the entire power in the entire rust belt for a couple days yeah yeah it is unclear if they could do the same today yeah because that's a good question if, if you had an unexpected major disaster how would the system respond well from observing how they responded to covid uh i guess stand around and shit their pants <laughs> that'd actually be preferable to what we what right partisan part like like personality driven partisanship yeah um, I like the final paragraph to this because I think it's completely accurate. I think this is actually a very good synopsis of what is going to happen. The path of least resistance will be the de- the devolution, de- 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 evolution of complex systems, and the reduction in the quality of life that entails. For the typical resident in a second tier city in Mexico, Brazil, or South Africa, power outages are not uncommon. Tap water is probably not safe to drink. And hospital-associated infections are common and often fatal. 
Absent a step change in the quality of American governance and our new culture of excellence, they prefigure the country's future. Uh, I would pretty much to the point, I don't think that there's any step change in the quality of American governance that's possible to fix this situation. What you're going to see, you're going to see a lot of negative comparisons of America to these countries that this guy is actually citing. Because the thing is, those all three of those countries are racial dysfunctional places. They all have extreme problems and that are the result of their of their general dysfunction. And South Africa is really the only comparable example of having of there being an ideological government that basically wants to is dead set on destroying its white people. It's really the only comparable example, and you can kind of debate which one which one's worse in terms of the ideology, South Africa or the United States. But what you're going to see, like while these other countries are dysfunctional, they still kind of function on some level at least without the everything being tinged by this ideological insanity what's going to happen is people are going to make these negative comparisons of the united states with these other countries like yeah the united states the waters is bad in mexico but at least uh you know at least in in mexico you're relatively safer safer as long as you don't you know stay out of these specific no-go areas but like these other cities they're they're fine there's nothing wrong with them whereas in the united states there's there's no safe cities nowhere is safe at at all it's just it's bad all everywhere and it's ideologically tinged everywhere we had we had done a previous uh, show on by the numbers where we were talking about is america a failed state and clearly there are parts of america that meet that definition there are parts of america that are failed (laughs) there's no other way to describe them these inner cities that have completely rotted out what America is almost kind of ref- re- uh, regressing to is is a frontier state where you have these power centers, these colonial power centers, essentially, and then anything past those borders is like, well, good luck out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good luck with good luck good luck with the red man. We can't really help you if you're out if you're out there on your yeah. own. Uh, maybe maybe we'll roll up in a in a in a couple decades. See how your towns are doing, and then we'll incorporate you into the into the broader complex structure of this country we're building. But uh, have fun, <laughs> have fun, have fun with the savages. That's yeah, essentially yeah, where yeah, we are in this country. Americans are largely accepting that because if you if you if you're an American and you read about a shooting or a stabbing or a killing, and it's in a urban area, you go, oh, of course, oh, of course, duh. Well, that figures, and you you accept that. You accept that that's just going to be the standard situation. It's not going to change. It's not going to be improved. It's not like this represents any kind of unforeseen event. It's in fact, it's expected. In a certain sense, it's planned. I mean, like they, there's not for nothing that areas that are probably the safest are Jewish areas, uh, at least they're the ones that are most heavily policed and get response times when there's issues. And they've pushed white people out into to be as fractured across this continent as much as possible, and have just left them to the wolves. That's mm-hmm. like, you can't organize. You cannot. It is when you're dealing with a landmass the size of the United States and people with a political and racial consciousness who are willing to act on it are so spread out that it takes eight hours for them at best to see one another. It's you're leaving them to the wolves, which is what you want as elites. You don't want these people to have the ability to organize. 
Right, right. And as long as their lights are on and they have power and they have security, why would they change anything? Why would they make lift a finger to improve the situation? They've got it's be, well, it's here. beneficial to them. It's be, yeah, it's beneficial to them. Like a a oppositional rival group is completely disenfranchised, disempowered, and is scattered in a diaspora. Which now that to me, this this is sort of like the question when you read these sorts of articles. Like, okay, no duh, of course this is how this is shaking out. But who are you trying to convince with this? Like, who is actually going to read this article and go, oh, you know, it's got a point. Uh, maybe we should uh, roll back our diversity initiatives here. It was funny with this article because like I it made a big splash, and I was like, and I was wondering like why? Like this, the he's not saying anything really unique or new i mean he's adding there's good like i want to be clear there's good information in here in terms of what's going on internally with american businesses but these sentiments these ideas they've been they've been out there for for decades and i wasn't i was not the first one to talk about this stuff there's a whole train of people that was on hammering on this stuff and a lot better than i ever was Decades before me, I mean, Joseph Tainter is kind of the premier academic on this stuff. So why did this article make a big splash? And then I go to the bottom here. Harold Robertson is an asset class head and institutional investor at a multi-billion dollar <laughs> pool of capitals. Oh, of course. That, no wonder <laughs> no wonder right-wingers are sharing this. Like More money. If, if you are money man, if you are if you are money power man, more money more money equals better than. So, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, like, so the black people are going to cost you money. Oh, oh no. Yeah, that was the thing I was, I was, I was actually, the, the part that I did want to get into briefly is he does list a particular organization that is meritocratic and of course, it's run by a black guy. And it's like, this that's a good example to throw out there with this like kind of tongue, tongue-in-cheek thing, but it's also almost like conservative bait. <laughs> yeah, it was just it was just weird to see so much attention being brought to this. And I, I, I didn't really understand why. And then I saw who here the, it is. I bio it. for the for this guy. And it's like, oh, of course. Yeah, like, the most notable like, example of a diverse meritocracy. <clears throat> Meritocracy is Vista Equity Partners, the large private equity firm founded by Robert F. Smith, America's wealthiest black man. <laughs> Robert there's, F. Smith. There's no, yeah. there, by the way, there, in, in, in the investment money power world, there's no such thing as meritocracy. It's all, yeah. that's bullshit. That's all like <laughs> meritocracy is, uh, is a smokescreen for like, we just planned it this way. Yeah, I, I do like this paragraph because, of course, it, it caps off pretty well here. Uh, Robert F. Smith's one of the most vocal advocates for and philanthropists to historically black U.S. colleges and universities. It would be reasonable to expect Vista to prioritize diversity over competency in its portfolio companies. However, Vista has instead been profiled for giving all portfolio company management teams the criteria cognitive aptitude test and ruthlessly culling low performers. Is that because they have a lot of blacks to get rid of? I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> given the amount of value to be created by promoting the best people into leadership roles in their portfolio companies. One might imagine this to be low-hanging fruit for the rest of private equity, yet Vista is an outlier. Why Vista can apply the CCAT, that's the Criteria Cognitive Attitude Test, why they can apply that without a public outcry is obvious. <laughs> I do like that little jab there, like, it's run by a black guy. So, of course, he can do that. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, this is... <clears throat> 
this was an interesting article, but for me, like the, the flaws in it are obvious. I mean, yeah, you really don't need, you don't, it's like, Hey, the, you know, this thing's burning down. You should probably put it out and shut up. <laughs> it's, it's fine. Like, well, what I would like to see that what I would like to see people who want to take on these collapse narratives do is I want them to say, well, what should be done? Because and this is, and I think this is a fair criticism towards some of the content that I used to do because I was kind of that in that prepper adjacent milieu, and it it was basically trying to work out this hope towards the political process the electoral process really what we're talking about here but that's how the joseph tuner talk i was listening to i've listened to multiple times how it, it always concludes of course those same recording <laughs> it concludes with tainter basically saying we need to have an adult conversation about the situation and we're not able to do that because our political system's so dysfunctional yeah, and that's fine for an academic, I think, to do that because his his thing, his focus is analyzing how complex systems fail. Like he's, he's he doesn't need, I think, to go all the all the way in like in a political realm. Like he's doing the hard, he's doing the heavy lifting in terms of the of the research and like. But when the stuff like filters into things like Palladium, which is read by conservatives, by edgy conservatives. And they're starting to take up some of these narratives like, okay, what do you want to do about it, though? Because if the answer is just going to be like, well, it's all going to collapse anyways, and we've just got to run away. It's like, okay, well, we've been hearing that for decades. Mm -hmm. And that's not that's not what people want. What people want is whether it is reform or whether it is revolutionary action. One of the people people want one of the two. There actually is the funny thing is like the system could placate a lot of people. There is hunger for reform. Every time people clap like seals whenever Elon Musk does a base tweet, do you know how many people would love it if Daddy Musk would just basically take over huge aspects of the system and just run it himself and make things slightly better people would would love that people who fashion themselves to be revolutionaries would basically uh put on the elon musk t-shirt in a in a hot second if musk did even a crumb of any action towards reforming this system people will abandon their principles in an instant for reform because of how intolerable this system is so it's going to be reform or it's going to be revolution and conservatives don't really like either. <laughs> they just yeah, kind of well, things, I, they want the, they want the miracle to happen and things just kind of fix on themselves on their own. Yeah, I, I think reforming it would be difficult. And I think there's certain things about the United States that make it maybe perhaps more difficult to reform because of the the piecemeal way that everything has been kind of slapped together with bailing wire and bubble gum anyhow. I, I think realistically, a revolutionary process would be more ideal. I, I don't. I mean, probably won't get either, but <laughs> that that would make more sense because in in many ways, I think you'd have to be creating new structures. So it's kind of like how Tanner talks about the uh, the D Day landing, which was a failure of complexity. Yeah, there are a lot of complex pieces of equipment, but they weren't loaded onto, onto the boats correctly, and they came off the boats in the wrong order, so there were problems. And in America, it's kind of the same way. It's like, no, some of these systems are not failing necessarily because they're overly complex. It's because there's there's not enough work, or, orchestration in how they function. Yeah. Well, 
all I got to say is to the people reading this article and people enjoying it, it's like you're going to get you're going to get some form of revolution in this country. You might as well pick one you're comfortable with because this is not sustainable. This is not sustainable well, for for anybody. Because right. the thing is, politically, it's going to eventually and you can see it starting to get that way now. It's going to eventually get to the point where you really, truly don't have any kind of democratic system and you just have a series of political strongmen or parties behaving as groups of political strongmen that, that take charge and potentially, yeah, you could even have usurpers and things. I mean, this happened in the Roman empire. They well, had if, a if, history of that. What, what my expectation of what this basically West, the Mississippi, a lot of this country is going to be a lot of low level chaos where it's nominally part of the United States, but it's effectively controlled yeah. by cartels and, and, and stuff. And then east of the Mississippi, that's kind of going to be your your rump NATO empire. Because mm-hmm. it's not a lot of the your the the Atlanticist allies are not going to just they're not just going to let United States collapse into total chaos, especially because that's to the benefit of China and and Russia. So you're you're gonna have basically this propped up rump empire is my expectation in the in the east especially it's gonna probably be very police state oriented because that's where a lot of the immigration is too so it's gonna be racially chaotic over there as well so kind of basically I imagine west of the Mississippi there's gonna be a lot it's basically gonna be the frontier and east of the Mississippi uh, racial terror ter- uh, terroristic police state. Right, right, and it, it is kind of like when you when you drive around America. I have experience being in America. A lot of it does just feel like it's, it almost is a frontier. Even hell, particularly where I live, and even your your interactions a lot of the country, you don't interface with the state very much. It's in many places, barely see police, barely see any kind of like state institution. It's all private. Which yet again, that's that's kind of the fascinating thing about the structure of the United States compared to previous empires is how privatized it is compared to something like the Roman Empire. Yeah, money, money, power. This is money. Power has always been present in some form or another in every empire, but the level to which this system is a money power oriented system, one of those things that where America has no precedent. Yeah. And they treat the, every problem as something you can solve by allocating financial resources, financial incentives, which is, of course, a tremendous blind spot. It's going to help accelerate this entire collapse process. In most, in actually almost, almost basically all empires, really, for the most part, you had the yeah. state. And the state was very definable. It had a lot of influence over other institutions. It was a centrally located thing. You could name, you could easily name a lot of the major figures in it. But the United States, it's a extremely bizarre, diffuse situation where the state does exist, and it is powerful. It, it and it does when it comes to doing the violent actions. It does the it will do the heavy lifting on that. But it kind of has to be cajoled cajoled into. Doing that, it's a it's a weird kind of like trinitarian thing of media, money, and and state. Yeah, yeah, it's very capricious. And, and, and the state's feel. almost like the, I guess like if you want to do like in a Christian sense here, so like this the state's almost like the Holy Ghost in this aspect where it you know it it goes out to do the actions of the uh, 
of the of the godhead essentially and so that's why mm-hmm. it feels encompassing to all of us but and it's it won't do anything without the without it's without being directed to do so yeah yeah well i'm about to get run over by this uh, this train out here it's probably gonna collapse through my freaking basement so yeah i, I think we got it covered all right well next week we should have james carlson back have a great afternoon everybody